0: Ephesians 3, verses 20 and 21. Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. I would invite you to please stand for the reading of God's Word. Please stand if you are able. We'll read Ephesians 3, 20 to 21. This is God's Word Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, uh, thank you for your word. We pray that you would sanctify us by the truth and your word is truth. Show us Christ and His grace in this doxology in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, and by the power of Your Holy Spirit, transform us by that grace into people who know You and follow You and love You more and more each day. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Please be seated. The Bible is surprisingly good news for surprisingly bad people. Uh, There's this book I used to read to Sophie a lot. Uh, It was one of her favorites, this book by an evangelical pastor in London by the name of Andrew Wilson. Uh, The book is called Sophie and the Heidelberg Cat. I'm sure you can already guess why this might be a favorite of Sophie's. I mean, what kid doesn't like a book where they're the protagonist? It explains a lot in the life of a toddler anyway. Um, Sophie and the Heidelberg Cat, a book about me, instant favorite, right? And it might be obvious to some of you why this book was a favorite of mine, too. If you've been around Reformed theology for very long, uh, you probably picked up on it. Sophie and the Heidelberg Cat. That's right. The cat is named after the Heidelberg Catechism. Catechism. It's okay. You can roll your eyes and groan. Calvin said it is nowhere forbidden to laugh. Okay, so the Heidelberg Cat. This book is a book all about guilt and grace. Her sister Michaela has broken her dollhouse and nobody cares. It gets a little rowdy. Michaela just broke my new dollhouse, so I gave her a shove and I knocked her down flat. Then I screamed at my parents, I ran to my room, and now I feel guilty for doing all that. Then the Heidelberg cat appears on the London rooftops and they go for a midnight stroll across the neighborhood shingles because, as the book reminds us, you always say yes to a cat that can talk. I mean, wouldn't You? She follows him on the rooftop stroll and says, everybody is mad at me. She's feeling really down. She thinks she's made, she's messed everything up and everyone is mad. Even God, she says. But the cat lets her in on a little secret. Everyone's surprisingly bad. It's so hard to be good all the time and it always goes wrong. Aha, says the cat. Let me tell you a secret. There's no one who can. Not your mom or your dad, your friends or your neighbors. And even your teacher, when no one can see, is surprisingly bad. And there's a picture here of the teacher eating chocolate from the lost and found box after school. (laughs) Look round the street. Mrs. Gubbins is rude. The Macintosh children are always in fights. The pastor gets angry. The shopkeeper's proud. And the Joneses have horrible quarrels at night. Why all this about a children's book? It's because this book that we open week after week... To hear from the Lord, it was written for people who are surprisingly bad, when no one is looking, maybe even when people are looking. In other words, this book that we call the Bible was written for people like you, and for people like me. And this doxology that we're going to look at this um, morning—it's—it's this surprisingly good news for surprisingly bad people. As we've said, doxology from doxa, which is glory in Greek, logia word or saying. So it's this word of glory that is good news for us. Uh, We've considered these places, right, where uh, the New Testament authors are just so overwhelmed with the truth as they are inspired and writing to the churches that they just explode in praise. And it gives us these doxologies, praising the Lord for who he is. And here in Ephesians 3, 20 to 21, uh, this shows us the God who surprises us. That's what this doxology is all about. So if, you're, if you leave here today holding on to just one thing from the sermon, I would hope it would be this. An unshakable sense of awe, amazement, and adoration for the God who is infinitely surprising. The God who surprises us. I want to show you three ways here that God surprises us. First, God's surprising ability to go beyond us. Second, God's surprising power at work within us. And finally, God's surprising power, or display rather, of glory through us. So his ability to go beyond us, his power at work within us, and his display of glory through us. So first way God surprises us, Um, his surprising ability to go beyond us. We find this in the first part of verse 20. Look there with me. Paul writes, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. Have you ever gotten to a point in prayer where you're praying and just thinking about God's greatness and His goodness and His kindness and His love, and you get to a point where uh, there's more to say, but you just don't know what that more could be? That's what's happening here with Paul. Uh, Let me give you some context from the book of Ephesians. Uh, These two verses of Paul's doxology in Ephesians 3 are really the hinge of the whole book. The whole book turns on what Paul says here. It's the turning point for what's been this theologically rich unfolding of the gospel in the first three chapters. And then this is now going to turn and pivot toward how the gospel, uh, all that Jesus has done to save his people, uh, how through the gospel and by the gospel, we've been rescued uh, from this, this surprisingly bad condition. And now we've been given a new way of life in order to live in a way that pleases God in every aspect of our life. But whether you look back on the gospel truths of chapter one through three, or you look forward at this gospel life that's laid out in chapters four through six, uh, you look at yourself and you think, really? You see, I know me. (laughs) Surprisingly bad me here. I'm a knocked her down flat kind of person. How in the world does any of this apply to me? This all sounds highly unlikely. It's almost like Paul just has to stop for a minute. And just by praising God for a minute, by giving God glory in this doxology, he steps out of the gospel doctrine that he's been unfolding for the Ephesians. And he says, listen, listen, people. Let what I just said sink in. So he prays. Paul begins praying back in Ephesians 3.14. And he says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled With all the fullness of God. This doxology that we're looking at uh, comes between this prayer and this final amen. Uh, His prayer breaks out into doxology at this point, Uh, he just starts praising God. And it's like he's grasping for the words to say next. He's like this helicopter pilot who's uh, pushing this prayer higher and higher, up to the limit. The rotors are, are scooping the thin air, the altimeters topped out, and he just has to keep going. Because there is more glory to be spoken of. There is more glory in God to be praised. He says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, He pushes even beyond the realm of doctrine and things that we know into the realm of imagination and things that we don't know. Part of getting to doxology, uh, part of words of glory uh, being characteristic of you and the way you live your life, for your life to be this doxology life we've spoken about in this series, uh, it's getting to the fact that we serve a God who surprises us. He has a surprising ability to go beyond us, beyond our ability, beyond our comprehension. We say, here's what I think I know, and here's what I think I need, and God is way over here saying, you don't know the half of it. His surprising ability to go beyond us. Our human brains just aren't built for this much glory. We'll never be able to praise God fully if we insist on keeping Him in the box of our finite understanding. And I'll be the first to admit, my prayers don't usually get there. Uh, they just don't. I don't know if that's how you thought pastors always sat around praying, uh, but they don't. I'm sorry to disappoint you. Uh, because far too often, I'm not praying to a big enough God. I'm, I'm praying according to my system of doctrine. I'm praying according to my knowledge of God. But Paul wants to take us further than that. Paul prays that the church may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth And length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Did you catch that? He's praying that we would know what surpasses knowing, what surpasses knowledge. How can you know beyond what you can know? This God he's praying to is quickly getting away from him and he's grasping at the words to describe it. This is a God who goes beyond us. We can't wrap our arms around all that God is. And what he has done for us in Jesus. That's good news for surprisingly bad people like us. And it pushes comprehension itself to the limits. So, you should pray according to your knowledge of God. Uh, You absolutely should. But your prayers should go further than that. They should press beyond what you comprehend into wonder and amazement at a God who surprises you. Paul's trying to put it into words. It's a long love. It's a high love. It's a wide love. It's a deep love. And you think, what in the world, Paul? What are you talking about? What does that mean? You're not making any sense. And he might say, exactly. Ephesians 1.3 God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. What is that, Paul? Ephesians 1.4 God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Still not following Paul. Ephesians 1.5, God predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. What is that? Well, someone says, adjusting their readers and pulling out their Westminster Confession of Faith, their stack of Burkhoff and Bovink and Voss, you know, the type of guy who always has that stack of books ready to pounce. Uh, To quote the great philosopher Obi-Wan Kenobi, of course I know him. He's me. Uh, I'm guilty of that. I'm the guy who wants to look at that and say, oh, well, I know what that is. I flip through a few pages of theology, and I say that's union with Christ, of course. That's predestination. That's the doctrine of adoption. And of course it is. And we should study these things. We take these things very seriously. But I can't begin to fathom it. Can you? Chosen before the foundations of the earth. A God whose love is wide and high and long, and deep, far beyond what we can comprehend. What I'm saying is this, I'm not knocking the hard study of theology. That's super important. But what I'm saying is the moment you stop being bowled over by it, and just captured in amazement, surprised at God, amazed at the love of God in Christ that surpasses knowledge, then all praise, all doxology, all wonder just gets sapped right out of your walk with Jesus. And it becomes a list of things that you've learned in a book. You have to be amazed by it. Your theology can't be a neatly bound collection of books sitting on your mental bookshelf. It just can't. It will do you no good at all until it can sweep you away in wonder at the God who surprises us. Beyond what you can ask and think, as soon as you start kneeling in prayer to that kind of God, to a God who you realize can surprise you and who does surprise you, and who is beyond what you can ask and think, that's when God shows up and works in your life. That's when your heart is changed. That's when you are just enraptured with who Christ is and what he has done for you. Praying to a God who goes beyond our abilities. So that's the first way that God surprises us, his surprising ability to go beyond us. Every ounce of gospel truth is beyond anything we could ask or think. So that's how he surprises us. Here's a second way that God surprises us. It's God's surprising power at work within us. The second half of verse 20, it says, according to the power at work within us. So here's here's that point that I made from the Heidelberg, the cat, not the catechism. Uh, It really comes into view here. When we're honest with ourselves, the cat has a point. The cat has a point. We're all surprisingly bad. If it were up to you and your own power to save yourself, Uh, you would just keep digging a deeper hole for yourself. We are all surprisingly bad. It's only God's grace toward you in Christ, working within you by his power, that you can sit here on a Sunday morning, as we say every week, uh, knowing that your sins are forgiven and you can worship God in peace. That's not because of you, friend. That's because of Jesus. It's only by his grace. And we see the surprising power of God at work within us, I think, in a couple of ways. 1st there's God's surprising power at work within us to save us. Paul speaks about this in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19. Uh, he relates one of his ongoing prayers for the Ephesians. And he says he prays for them that they would know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might. What is that great might? Paul goes on through verse 21. He says it's the working of his great might That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. What's really incredible is that this power that Paul is talking about, this great might, this surprising power, it's the power of the gospel. It's the power of the Gospel. It's the Gospel story. We just heard it. Raised Him from the dead, seated Him in His ascension. It's the Gospel story about when the power of God reanimated the dead and buried Savior, raising Him to life again. And that power did the very same thing with surprisingly bad people like us who by faith in Christ have been raised to new life. Look with me at Ephesians 2. I'll give you a moment to turn there. Ephesians 2 1-7, 1-7, through seven. maybe one of the most amazing passages of Ephesians, and certainly one that is worth memorizing. Ephesians 2, 1-7 says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. But God, when we were dead, raised us to life in Jesus. That is surprising power at work within you. It's like the walking dead. That's what you have here. Just, just blindly following the powers of this world and You're blindly following like a zombie pursuing the the pleasures of the flesh and the desires of the flesh. And then in comes the antidote, the cure, the remedy that everyone is looking for. God's rich mercy comes on the scene. This great surprising power of God in the Gospel and it pulls you out of your stupefying sin and it sets you of all places in the heavenlies with all blessing in Jesus Christ. That's His surprising power. Uh, Your eternal destiny is now by God's mercy as secure as Christ's seat at the right hand of the Father. That's His surprising power at work within you to save you. But there's more than that. We have God's surprising power at work within us to save us. There's also God's surprising power at work within us to change us, to sanctify us. Sanctification, what's that? Well, in the Westminster Standards, and that's where I'll go because that's our confession of faith, Uh, it explains in the larger catechism what sanctification is. And it draws mostly on Ephesians. Some of these passages we've been looking at. Stick with me here because I know a long paragraph from a catechism can knock you out. But you have to hear this. Listen to what he says here. This is uh, what our catechism says. Sanctification is a work of God's grace whereby they whom God has before the foundation of the world chosen to be holy. That's Ephesians 1. Here comes Ephesians 2. "...are in time, through the powerful operation of His Spirit, applying the death and resurrection of Christ unto them." There it is. "...made us alive together with Christ." "...they are renewed in their whole man after the image of God, having the seeds of repentance unto life, and all other saving graces put into their hearts. And those graces so stirred up, increased, and strengthened, that they more and more die unto sin and rise unto newness of life. So there's this dying to sin. And there's there's this rising to new life and this ongoing process of sanctification. It's this work of change and growth that we see in our lives. Uh, We tend to see it in terms of what we do as we try to faithfully follow Jesus, right? Run into someone who really drives us nuts and we say, man, that was a moment that really tried my sanctification. Right? We think of it as the ways that what we do to try to faithfully follow Jesus. But notice, who does all the action here? We more and more die unto sin and rise unto newness of life, but how? Not by anything we can do ourselves. We're renewed. That's God's work. Repentance and all other saving graces are put in our hearts. Again, God's work. All those graces stirred up, increased, strengthened. Again, you guessed it. God's work. God's surprising power at work in you to sanctify you, to change you. Christian, just like God has gone surprisingly far beyond all that you could ever think or hope or imagine or ask for, uh, this power at work within you, it does so in surprising ways. This looks a million different ways in a million different moments in your life as you are changed by the power of God at work within you. But just know this and don't miss it. It's not your doing. It's not your doing. It's God's surprising power at work within you. As John Newton, the slave trader turned pastor and gospel poet, so wonderfully put it, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. I think we can all say amen to that. Just be amazed this morning at God's surprising ability to go beyond you. And be amazed at God's surprising power at work within you. Uh, there's a third and final way that God surprises us. We've seen this ability uh, to go beyond us, this power at work within us. Finally, I want you to see God's surprising display of glory in us. Uh, his, his glory, that shouldn't surprise us. But where is that glory on display? That's the shocker. It's a, disp- it's a surprising display of glory in in us. Look at verse 21. The real word of glory, the doxology part, comes in 21 when Paul says something really surprising. He says, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. You know, maybe you're here this morning and you've never personally encountered this surprising God that we're going on about. Maybe you've been in church, but uh, you're not in Christ. Maybe you've never put your faith in Jesus and turned from your sins to follow him. Maybe you didn't know you were supposed to. Maybe you've been running from him. Remember earlier when Paul said that we are dead in our sins, dead in our trespasses and sins, following the devil. Maybe you resented the insinuation that you're some kind of zombie following a dark overlord. I'm actually partial to zombie movies myself. Uh, Mariana says I have horrible taste in TV. Every TV show that I like gets canceled. She says that should tell you something. Um, Be that as it may, something I've noticed in zombie movies is that zombies don't actually know they're dead. You say, Dan, it's just a movie. Are you really making a point out of this? Well, my point is this, and it's important. At the end of the day, zombies may not know they're dead, but if you are here this morning and you wouldn't think to call yourself dead in sin... Uh, you still know that you are dead in sin. You know that you were created to live for something more. You know that you were created for more than you're living for. Uh, you're drawn to glory. And, and we're going to talk about this true glory in just a moment. Uh, but you're drawn to glory. Everyone is drawn to glory and you just can't quite get to it. I don't know what particular kind of glory it is you're drawn to, uh, but I do know Uh, that we were all created to glorify and enjoy something greater than us, something outside ourselves, in fact, someone who is beyond us. We were created for the glory of God. I think there's a word that captures this. Uh, The best I can tell, it's a word that was coined by John Muir. Uh, John Muir was the Scottish-American mountaineer who was famous for founding Yosemite Park. Uh, He he coined this term that he called upness, upness, upness. That sense impressed on us by the grandeur of the mountains, the rolling hills of the Blue Ridge Mountains, the imposing precipice of Half Dome and Yosemite, the dazzling green hues of Vale during a Rocky Mountain springtime. It's this sense of glory and awe. Amir called this upness. He was drawn to this upness of the mountains. He said, of all the upness accessible to mortals, there is no upness comparable to the mountains. But you see, he got it wrong. Muir was wrong. The mountains aren't incomparable in their upness. There is an even greater upness accessible to mortals than the upness of the mountains. And it's the upness, the glory that your heart is longing for and looking for. Surprisingly bad people like you and me, through the Holy Spirit opening our eyes to see, giving us new life in Jesus Christ, we have access to the upness of God, our Creator and our Redeemer. Of all the upness accessible to mortals, there is no upness comparable to the glory of God. There's this upness, there's this glory to be seen. You say, okay, where can I see it? Where can I see it? The incredible thing about this doxology is that Paul doesn't leave us wondering about where we can see this glory, where we can see this grandeur of God. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. You see it in Christ and you see it in the church. The head And the body, Christ and His church. In fact, this word might even be translated through, the way through which God receives glory. To Him be glory through the church and through Christ Jesus. So if you want to see the upness of God's glory, it's found in a really surprising place. Just stick around this room, look around this room. If you want to see God's glory on display, you don't have to go on a spiritual retreat to the mountains. Just look around this room. We're not much to look at. C.S. Lewis got it right when he observed one of the best tools in the devil's tool belt is to keep us focused on the weirdos sitting right there next to us in church. That's my modern translation. Uh, without really seeing the church and all that the church really and truly is, looking around and seeing people we might otherwise avoid. Acne, bad breath, B.O. and bad hairdos, pettiness, gruffness, the nerds, introverts, extroverts, all mixed together, people who struggle to feel they belong, people who feel that they're better than most. You say, I thought you said there was glory here. There is, because it's not about the people. It's about the surprising God who works in them and beyond them and shows his glory through them. God says, you see these knuckleheads over here? This misbehaving group of misfits, those are my people. And they may not be much to look at right now, but I am making them something glorious. They are mine forever. And that's where I will be glorified. You don't get upness like that, glory like that, anywhere else in the world. Stand at the foot of Mount Everest, and you're just dwarfed into insignificance by it all. Stand at the foot of the cross, and Jesus looks at you and says, I will display my glory through you. That's why you should stop looking for glory anywhere else and look for it at the foot of the cross instead. This is the only place in all of Scripture where you see the church placed right next to Jesus as that through which God will receive all the glory. And that's because we are no more and no less than who we are in Jesus. And because we're in him, there's a surprising display of glory in this room full of surprisingly bad people. As that wonderful theologian, the Heidelberg cat, tells Sophie, The Bible tells stories of hundreds of people, and all of them disobey God, except one. So hope doesn't come from the good things we do. It comes as a gift from what Jesus has done. Our God is pretty surprising, isn't he? Let's pray together. Father, we're blown away by your grace. We're surprised, as we should be, at your goodness and love to us in Christ. May you get all the glory as imperfect people like us gather week after week, to see Jesus and be changed by an encounter with him, living more and more like people where your glory is at work, your gift of grace molding and shaping us more and more into the image of Christ. May our prayers unravel into praise like Paul's. And may we always look to you as the good and gracious God who surprises us. Let all who name Christ's holy name give God all praise and glory. In the name of Christ we pray, amen.